Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Great. All right, I'm going to turn it over to Kelly. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for joining the webinar. As Jen mentioned, my name is Kelly Kissel, and my background in working with criminal justice includes my current position as the manager at the Office for Victim Programs, overseeing uh, a couple different state programs, including victims' rights compliance and um, victim compensation, and a lot of grants that are given out to the communities. Uh, prior to working at the Division of Criminal Justice, I also worked within two prosecutor's offices as far as um, victim services and victim witness director of those programs. So a lot of my experience is on the, the front side of the system, but um, having been the victim's rights specialist in the past as well, uh, some experience on the back end. And really today, our goal is to walk you through a general overview of the criminal justice system so that you understand both how it works for law enforcement, the district attorney's offices, and all of the post-sentencing agencies that are involved. And what you're going to hear a lot from me today is that part of my answers will depend on what jurisdiction you're in. So again, this will give a broad brush overview, but it's important to keep in mind that certain things will work in a particular way depending on where you do your work and in what county or city that you're located in. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Be. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10... We did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other, because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. Every politician who was taking donations from the NRA... I believed them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors. I believed them. Children being separated from their parents in front of an American flag. I believe them. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, that didn't happen, and here we are. I believe these women. You're wrong. I feel extremely lucky to, to be here with all of you fighting for justice, for equality, for the right for us to equally exist in this country. There were 329 uprisings, 257 cities within four and a half years. And neither Martin nor Fannie had any control over that. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and finding our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. But their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world, but the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless America. May God bless America. So first of all is really just sort of understanding the criminal side versus the uh, civil side. And what's important to know about both of those things is really on the civil side, we're talking about harm caused to an individual. We're talking about hiring private attorneys, 
you're considered a plaintiff in the case, and then there's usually some sort of remedy that's more financial. And a lot of what we do, obviously, in the criminal justice system links between both the civil and criminal. We're going to spend a lot more of the time today on the criminal side. And when we talk about the criminal side, there's a couple important differences from the civil side. First of all, usually when a case is charged, it's charged the people versus a named person who committed the crime. So a lot of times victims have questions about whether they're charging an individual, and it's never the victim themselves charging someone, but it is the prosecutor's office who represents the people of the state of Colorado. You always do have a prosecutor involved, and most of the time victims may ask if they need their own attorney. They don't need an attorney to prosecute their case. They may have a desire to have attorney for different parts along the way. For example, if they feel like their rights were violated, then they may want to have a victim's rights attorney be part of that process, but the prosecutor is there to basically represent them as one of the people of the state of Colorado. Also in our criminal cases, the burden of proof is a lot higher than it is in the civil case. Uh, but it is the highest level of proof, which is called the beyond the reasonable doubt threshold. And again, for most of us, what that means is, is it more likely uh, that this happened? If you were a normal person, would you doubt otherwise that it didn't? But it is the highest level of proof that we have in the criminal justice system. And then the penalty is really different from the civil case. So it's much more about some fines that might be associated with the court case and then some sort of sentence resulting that could be probation, parole, or some sort of confinement in jail or Department of Corrections. But there's not a uh, pain and suffering sort of payout to a victim as a result of a criminal case versus the civil side. In Colorado, it's also important to know that cases can end up in three different types of jurisdictions. We have both the federal jurisdiction, the state or district court jurisdiction, and the municipal court jurisdiction. And Crimes of all types can end up in all three. Um, what's important is there's some distinctions between each of them and the cases we're gonna walk through today, we're gonna talk more about the state system. But um, what we have is in the municipal, those are city ordinances that govern the charges that happen in a uh, municipal court. And so it's a lot of infractions, petty offenses, misdemeanors, which are the less serious classification. Um, and you have city and county prosecutors, so those are not your district attorneys that we often refer to in the criminal case. Uh, however, it's important to know that some of the cases that you wouldn't expect to be in municipal court actually in Colorado are, and that includes domestic violence. Um, domestic violence cases are actually quite a few get charged in municipal court uh, throughout our state, depending on the jurisdiction where you live. And that was actually surprising to me when I worked down in El Paso County. Uh, none of our domestic violence cases went into municipal court. They were all handled in the state court. And then I worked up in the 18th Judicial District Attorney's Office. And when I first started there, there was only about 500 domestic violence cases coming through our office as misdemeanors. And I was really surprised by that. I was afraid we weren't charging. And actually, they have a very active municipal court where over 2,000 cases go through Aurora Municipal Court for domestic violence. The important thing to know about cases if they go through municipal court is actually that the Colorado Victims' Rights Act doesn't apply in municipal court. So for me, I'm personally concerned when domestic violence cases go through municipal court because the victims don't have their rights under the VRA. Um, that next level then is the state court. That's what we more often see our criminal justice uh, cases working in, and, and that's where we're talking about a prosecutor's office or a district attorney's office. And those are governed by state statute. This is where the VRA comes into play as far as victims' rights across the state. Again, you can have something as low as petty offenses, which I'll talk about in a second, misdemeanors and felonies. And felonies are those higher class offenses that we often think of, uh, sex assault, something um, vehicular, homicide, homicide, those sorts of cases. And you have on your handout a definition of both the misdemeanor and the felony uh, and how they're classified in our state. Um, there are 22 judicial district attorney's offices in our state or 22 judicial districts that handle those cases. You also then have the federal level, which is the federal statutes, and you can have misdemeanors and felonies in there, and it's the U.S. attorney's office that handles those cases. Uh, the, oftentimes, you'll see in federal cases, it may be a series of bank robberies that get um, 
charged into federal court versus state court. Sometimes some of the human trafficking cases go through the federal versus the state. Uh, and it's sort of a discussion between both the district attorney's office on the state level and the U.S. attorney's office on the federal level as to which cases will go where, uh, depending on sort of how sentences can come out. Kelly, we did have one um, comment about uh, tribal courts. Do you, can you speak to tribal courts and how they fit into the system at all, to your knowledge? Sure. So the tribal courts in in Colorado, there's two recognized federal tribes, the Ute Mountain Ute and the Southern Ute. And those tribal courts both work very different because one is managed by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, so it's federal uh, in its system and in its jurisdiction. And then in the Southern Ute tribe, they have their own tribal court and it's all tribal police and tribal court and tribal members that handle that one. So they work very different. VRA would also not apply um, in the tribal courts as they function. This is just a quick map of the 22 judicial districts that we have in Colorado. Again, this means that there are 22 prosecutor's offices across the state handling our cases. Uh, we're not gonna talk a lot about it today, but victim compensation is a piece of the criminal justice system. There are also 22 victim compensation programs across the state that are housed within the district attorney's offices. And all of those programs can have slightly different um, eligibility requirements as far as caps on how much they pay. So it's important if you're working within your jurisdiction to know a little bit about your victim compensation program and to know uh, where your district attorney's office would fall. I briefly mentioned uh, that there are some petty offenses and I just have this slide in here to demonstrate what could still be on the books in Colorado. In part, if you're displaying any flag other than a US flag or a Colorado flag on a state, county, municipal or other public building, that's actually a petty offense that's on our books. Um, if you still fight in a public place, you can actually commit the offense of dueling. That is still on our books in Colorado, so that's just kind of a fun fact that you could still be charged with dueling in 2017. Um, I haven't seen that ever come across in my career, but just a little funny piece. Um, taking a wildlife by a leg trap or snare is another type of penny offense because we don't allow the inhumane trapping and snaring of animals. We let them hunt, but not by trap or snare in Colorado. And then another just example is that you can't abandon a refrigerator in a public or private area that's accessible to children. And that's a safety thing so that a child doesn't actually get lost in an abandoned fridge or freezer. So those are examples of petty offenses, which are, are considered our lower level offenses in our criminal justice system here in Colorado. And this is again in a, a breakdown in addition to your definition about misdemeanor versus felony. So oh, the slide, the arrows are swapped on this one. I forgot to change this. So uh, picture that the arrows are actually swapped. So your misdemeanor are your less serious crimes. You can get county jail up to two years. You can be on probation as part of a misdemeanor. It happens in what's called our county court, which is part of our state court system. And when you're actually, if a case ever goes to trial on a misdemeanor, you can have a trial with six jury members on it, or you can request to have a trial by the court. So it's just the judge that hears your case. And then uh, the increasing one there is your felony, which is your more serious crimes. That's when we talk about prison versus jail. And oftentimes uh, victims may get that confused when you're, we're talking about what's prison versus what's jail. Jail is your county jail in your local judicial districts versus the state prison system. Um, you can still get probation when you're charged with a felony. That sometimes comes as a shock to victims that that can be an outcome in a case, but it can. And then again, we're referencing district court versus county court in this, and in our system, that's a 12 member jury. You don't have the option on a felony to actually have a court trial when it's a felony case. Um, so we're gonna talk a little bit about and, and walk through today two scenarios of how a crime would sort of go through the system depending on whether it was a misdemeanor or a felony in our system. And obviously we start out with a crime being reported and it's important to remember that that crime doesn't necessarily have to be reported by the victim. It could be a bystander that then is contacting law enforcement um, and law enforcement will respond and some different things will happen again, depending on whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, we'll walk through that and they start their investigation and eventually um, those charges then come through the district attorney's office over to the court. Um, this is just a little trivia slide. It's really old now, but I think it's kind of funny to, it plays into stuff later on. So I asked, do you recognize these people? And if you've been around long enough, this is the 
the um, actors from T.J. Hooker um, in the 1980s. And if you think about kind of how our system has changed and, and why I bring this up is, is how people perceive our system and misconceptions that jurors come in with. So if you've ever watched this show or currently you've watched um, any of the other law enforcement shows, jurors really expect a lot of information to come through uh, as a result of investigations. And it's really hard sometimes to convict offenders because they have these preconceived notions like this horribly now outdated and sexist show of C.J. Hooker where every show they were in a shootout and she always got to dress up and go undercover in some horribly scantily clad outfit. Uh, and we know law enforcement doesn't work like that at all, but those are perceptions that get put out on the TV that then are incorrect that paint both our jurors and give misperceptions about how the criminal justice system works. And uh, the guy on the right peaked his career as in Greece too, Adrian Smith. I think that was his last known movie. And TJ Hooker, of course, went on. He's Captain Kirk and all sorts of fun things at the bottom. William Shatner. All right, so we're going to walk through just uh, a couple scenarios with the same couple. So we have Jason and Janice, and Jason's 20 years old, 28 years old. He's from an upper middle class family, employed as a high school teacher. Um, in the last year, he married Janice. They moved to Colorado. She's not currently working, but is looking for work. She has a business and marketing degree, and all of her family is in North Carolina. So. We'll walk through what's going to sort of happen. We'll have the incident, which is Janice and Jason decide they wanted to get to know their neighbors. So they host a barbecue on Labor Day. And during that evening, Janice and Jason had a verbal argument in the kitchen. Most of the guests are in the backyard at that time, but the windows were open so the neighbors could hear them arguing as this was going on. Um, at some point during the argument, Jason pushed Janice and took her cell phone from her. Janice didn't want to cause a scene, so she went out to the backyard to get away from Jason. However, one of the neighbors was concerned and called local law enforcement, and law enforcement responded to the residents. So this is, again, one of those examples where uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be the victim in our system that can have law enforcement call. And I think we see both things where we see people who don't want to become involved, and they, and they sort of turn around and don't call law enforcement, and we have others that want to do that. But you can imagine um, being in that scenario as a neighbor and trying to decide what you would do if you heard this going on in the kitchen. So the law enforcement officer comes on scene and they speak both with Jason and Janice and the neighbors that had stayed on scene. Not surprising, some neighbors left again, not wanting to be involved in that process. Um, if it's a good law enforcement investigation, they're hopefully talking to Jason and Janice separately rather than having them in a room together. Um, officers noted that Janice had some red marks on her back and, and then Jason was taken and arrested at the county jail. And so what's important about this is the officer on scene had to do his or her own assessment as to why Jason was arrested. And what we need to know in Colorado is that we have a mandatory arrest law on domestic violence. So the law says that when a peace officer determines there's probable cause that the crime of domestic violence has been committed, uh, the officer shall, without undue delay, arrest someone. Okay? And in your work in the criminal justice system, it's just really important to keep in mind Oftentimes, the victim isn't going to understand why um, their significant other is being taken into custody when it's not what they've asked to have happen. And so being able to explain that it's not because they're making a choice or asking the officer to do that, if the officer sees that enough evidence exists that something had happened related to domestic violence, they're responsible and required to make that arrest. And obviously, you're going to have some victims that are glad that this is happening, some are going to be concerned that that is going to cause retaliation on them because uh, law enforcement was called, but the officer does not have a choice in those instances to actually uh, make an arrest at that point. So um, when the officer did his assessment, his, he or she, basically they realized obviously Janice didn't contact law enforcement, but there was enough of another witness concerned that they did, and she had a visible injury and she was able to confirm that they were in an intimate relationship, which is the other part of a domestic violence case in Colorado, is the establishment that there was an intimate relationship. Uh, people sometimes ask if that requires that to be a sexual relationship in nature, and it does not require that. Uh, they just have to have been dating or uh, on a date or in some type of relationship in that way, but it doesn't require it to be sexual in nature under Colorado law. So based on all of that, that's why the officer took Jason into custody. So. 
then they have to figure out what charges they're going to have for Jason and who decides that. Again, it's not on the victim to decide uh, what charges or they don't have that burden to figure that out. Uh, on, in a misdemeanor case, law enforcement is going to determine what they think were relevant uh, charges on scene based on what they saw. So again, Janice had the red marks on her back, so third degree assault is appropriate under our statute. Uh, also harassment if he was yelling at her and threatening her in that way. The scenario mentioned that her phone was taken at that time, that's telephone obstruction. Uh, what we used to see a lot in cases is that phone cords were pulled out of walls. That was the telephone obstruction that happened, was actual phones being ripped out of walls. But in this day and age with cell phones, it's more about um, them taking the phone or smashing those uh, mobile devices. And then we also have domestic violence listed here. And what's important to know in Colorado that domestic violence by itself is not a charge in Colorado. Um, what is charged are the, the three other bullets that are there. And then domestic violence is an enhancer based on the situation of them being in an intimate relationship. So it by itself in Colorado is not a charge. Um, so for Jason, he's going to go into custody. So the officers made the probable cause determination that they do believe domestic violence and third degree assault had happened. And he gets booked into county jail uh, wherever he's living in a jurisdiction. And he's held until he has to appear before the court. And what's been really important to know about that is Every, this is where the 22 jurisdictions can operate very different as to when he'll actually appear in court. There are a couple jurisdictions within the state that have weekend court, so Jason could have a court hearing on a Saturday. Most don't have them until that um, following day, so if it was rest on a Friday and it wasn't a weekend court jurisdiction, he wouldn't appear until Monday for court. But it's important to learn in your own jurisdiction how that'll happen so that you can give a victim accurate information. Uh, in this particular scenario, Jason can't post bond on a domestic violence case until he actually does appear for the court. Uh, and so that can give Janice a little bit of time to do what she needs to do as a result of the assault that she wants to take some time, uh, move out of the house, temporarily go to friends, get services, any of those sorts of things. She has a little bit of window of time to do that if he's held over until bond is heard on a regular court date. So for Janice in Colorado, it will vary a little bit too. She may have contact with a law enforcement victim advocate at this point. In many jurisdictions in Colorado, law enforcement does not call out victim advocates on misdemeanor cases. So again, it's important for you to know um, how your jurisdiction works. If they don't actually appear on scene and talk to Janice, typically one will call her the next day to make contact with her. Uh, Janice will be given some sort of notice to appear in court as a result of Jason being taken into custody. It says up there that she could also receive a subpoena. Again, different jurisdictions do different um, ways of asking the victim to appear, and it's important to know I personally um, am concerned when they subpoena victims into court the next day versus giving them a notice to appear. Uh, but basically what should happen is she should be given that court date and you need to know in your jurisdiction if it's a notice versus a subpoena because a subpoena can be pretty scary for a victim to get and they're going to wonder what the consequences are if they don't show up, if they don't feel like showing up that next day. The goal is to really have Janice get contact with the district attorney's office following the incident so that they can then also speak with the district attorney advocate to talk to them about uh, the criminal protection order that's going to be put in place. Uh, if if Janice has any concerns or thoughts about what she wants with Bond, if she does or doesn't want to have contact with Jason um, as part of the protection order that's going to be put in place on the case. And again, every victim will have a different opinion about that depending on whether this is uh, a one-time incident, whether they still want to stay in a relationship with the offender, whether they have children and they need to work out and have some sort of contact so that um, Meeting with the DA victim advocate is really important so they can sort of figure out uh, what Janice needs as a result of going through this incident so uh, that they can take care of her and get her resources as soon as they're able to do so. Uh, so we can talk a little bit about bond um, next. And in, it's important to know in Colorado, again, there are a variety of different bonds and bonds can work really different in each jurisdiction. But the three type of bonds that we typically talk about are a cash bond where they're actually just posting money to get out. Um, 
bonds can be set really, really low in Colorado, depending on the jurisdiction. And typically, you only have to post 10% of whatever the bond amount is. And, and that comes as a surprise to victims. So again, it's really important for you to know in your jurisdictions how bonds work. Um, some jurisdictions have a bond schedule. So if you're charged with third degree assault, the bond is always a certain amount. And then you're able to tell that victim that the offender will only have to post 10% of that for cash. There are also property surety bonds. And that's basically the offender or defendant putting something up to ensure that if they fail to appear in court, that the court could seize their property or whatever they put up as collateral, a house, et cetera. This is sometimes what you see with the bondsman when they call a bonds person to actually guarantee their property in some way. And um, if you have watched any of the shows, the glorified dog, the bounty hunter, um, he does those property surety bonds. And then if someone fails to appear, he's the one that's out picking them up because they didn't appear on their bond. Uh, he actually has a house here in Castle Rock, which is why he's often spotted uh, in Colorado. And then the third type is what's called a PR bond, which is a personal recognizance bond. And what that basically means is the person usually has a very limited criminal history and the judge has basically said on their own good faith, they'll return without having to put up cash or property. And again, I would just encourage you to know what sort of happens in your jurisdiction because I'd like to say that um, on a domestic violence case that they would not give someone a PR bond, but it is actually pretty common uh, for PR bonds to be issued in some of the jurisdictions around the state. So you want to be able to inform your victim whether the offender is going to have to put up any sort of money to get out and what the likelihood is of the um, type of bond and how high the bond might be set. In Colorado, we also have a variety of protection orders and you can actually probably do an entire session or webinar on protection orders all by themselves. So this is really a brief overview of them. Two important things to note that we reference. Uh, the criminal protection order is usually issued as part of the criminal case. So when Jason gets arrested and he appears before the judge, the judge gonna, is going to put a criminal protection order in place or oftentimes it's referred to as a mandatory protection order that used to be referred to as a restraining order. Um, you'll see up on the slide, there's a reference that it's 18-1-1001. That's actually the statute that talks about the criminal protection order. And sometimes those working in the system will just say that they were issued in 18-1-1001, which is a really helpful way to reference anything, but that is the criminal protection order. Uh, that protection order is in place through the duration of the case. So what's important to know is that it should stay in place till the sentence is completed by the offender. So if, if for some reason the offender is sentenced to Department of Corrections and then is out on parole, it should last all the way through parole. Um, I have seen instances where the clerks put an end date in the computer system and they have dropped off when they're not supposed to drop off. And so that can be pretty scary for a victim. It doesn't happen all the time. Uh, but that is the case that it should go through the duration. Also, uh, under the Victims' Rights Act, if the defendant asks for a modifi modification to the criminal protection order, the victim under the Victims' Rights Act has a right to be heard at that um, phase of the hearing, considered a critical stage for the victim so that they can give input. And again, it's just really important to let the victim know that that input can be in conjunction with what the prosecutor is asking, which is often to keep uh, the protection order with no contact, um, but the victim can also come in and say that they want contact with the offender and the reasons why that they want to do that, but they definitely need to have that right to be heard if someone asks to have the protection order modified. Uh, if the victim is asking for the criminal protection order to be modified, it works, again, very different in every jurisdiction. The victim is not considered a party to the case in Colorado since it's the people versus the offender. It's how the charges read. And every jurisdiction has a different process if the victim wants the criminal protection order modified. So it's important to know what happens in your jurisdiction. For example, in Adams County, uh, they have a window at their courthouse where the victim can go in, fill out paperwork, ask to be put on the docket to be heard about the criminal protection order and ask to have it modified. Um, in other jurisdictions, a victim can't file a motion to have it modified, but they will give them paperwork to file a notice since they're not a party to the case. In other jurisdictions, they 
may require the victim to create a safety plan first, present that safety plan to the court, and then the court will consider modifying the protection order. So again, just really important to kind of have that discussion with those in your system to figure out how it works so you can best advise a victim how those uh, orders can be modified on their behalf. Also in Colorado, then we have the civil protection orders. There's usually two phases of that. There's a temporary protection order that's issued, uh, and the court will say that the victim will have to have um, the offender served in some way on that. So hopefully they can do that if the offender is still in custody, and if not, um, they may have to go through law enforcement to have the offender served with that temporary protection order. Oftentimes the courts then set another date out from the temporary protection order to have a permanent protection order hearing later and inquire whether the victim actually wants that protection order to in fact be entered as a permanent protection order rather than a temporary protection order. I think if you are talking with victims and trying to help them understand the system, there are certainly agencies around the state that can help appear as lawyers with the victim to help them handle the civil protection order. So I think the hardest thing for victims in that one of the hardest things in that process is if the offender has an attorney representing them in the civil hearing and the victim does not, um, it can be pretty threatening for a victim to have to go through and be questioned on the stand to get that civil protection order. In theory, you can have both protection orders um, in place at the same time. So just because you have a criminal protection order doesn't mean you can't get a civil one. I will tell you, again, this varies across the state. There are some judges that won't issue a civil protection order while the criminal protection order is in place. I don't think that's best practice because the criminal case can end very quickly. They can um, suddenly dismiss the charges or they can be acquitted and then the victim would need to quickly get a civil protection order put in place. So uh, it's another piece where it's important to sort of know how the judges are ruling in your jurisdiction, whether they would allow a victim to have both during that process. And if they don't, as an advocate, it's really important for you to be prepared to tell that victim if for some reason maybe the charges are going to be dismissed or they're going to trial and there's a chance of acquittal happening to advise that victim of how they can get that civil protection order in place pretty quick in case they want to do that uh, when the criminal protection order ends. All right, so back to our scenario. The next day, Jason's going to be advised of his rights or Monday if it was on the weekend and he's gonna have that bond set, and he may have what's called the immediate option to go to an arraignment. So he may be able to say right at that point whether he wants to plead guilty or not plead guilty. So in Colorado, there are a lot of programs specific to domestic violence that um, within the prosecutor's office have what's called fast track programs. And that does allow the uh, offender or defendant to go in that very next day and possibly take a plea in a case. The goal when Fast Track was set up initially was to try to get offenders into treatment as quickly as possible. What has transitioned over the last four or five years is that oftentimes they don't take a plea that very first date because they are now have the option of a public defender represent them at that very first hearing. Um, and so many times now the offenders um, don't enter a plea on that first date. Uh, and they set the case for a next court date, or which is usually what's called a pretrial conference. Um, I can tell you in, in my experience in working in one of the jurisdictions, the plea rate was somewhere around 30% on the first hearing back prior to the public defender representing the defendant on that first day in Fast Track. And when I had left the office, it was closer to a one or 2% plea rate. So more offenders are holding over and prolonging that process a little bit. And so he would most likely come in and say that he did not want to, want to enter any sort of plea or say not guilty at that time. And they set it for a pretrial conference a couple of weeks out from the current hearing. Then if we switch and talk a little bit about Janice, again, we hope she'll come into the district attorney's office that next day, or if she can't appear, the district attorney's office will try and reach out and speak with her. In part, they wanted to see what she would like to see come of the case. Again, if it's sort of a fast-track process, the Victims' Rights Act requires that they consult with Janice about what they want to do on the case and what her input is in that. So if they're going to offer Jason any sort of plea in that fast-track program the next day, they need to know how Janice feels about that and what she would like to see happen in the case. They also want to make sure, of course, that they're getting her input on the protection order, on the bond, all of those pieces that are also important to Janice as a survivor of the domestic violence. And then 
in addition, hopefully they can help assessment of some of her needs. Does she need victim compensation? Does she need relocation? Does she have safety concerns? Does she need help staying where she's at, but maybe help with the rent? All of those sorts of things or mortgage that may come into place. And then she also will have the right to be heard at that court hearing. So if the uh, Jason goes into court and he wants to address bond that day, she has a right to be heard on the bond and any modification in the bond to give her input about that. And if they take the plea that day and go to immediate sentencing for some reason, Janice also has the right to speak about her feelings about the plea and whether she agrees with it and uh, give a victim impact statement as far as the sentencing is concerned. We're going to assume that Jason says he's not guilty at this point, and so what happens in our court system is what's called speedy trial starts. And speedy trial basically in our law says that Jason has a right to have his case heard as a trial within six months of him entering his not guilty plea that day. Um, it's really important to know that it's pretty common in our court system for uh, the offender to say that they're not guilty, start the speedy trial, and then they'll waive their right to having a speedy trial. So for our victims, what's really, really important to keep in mind is to give them a realistic expectation about how long it could take for a case to go to trial or how many continuances they can have. There's nothing in the law that says you only have a right to two continuances and you have to do something. They can have more than that if their attorney requests it and they provide a basis for doing that. So uh, it's good, again, to let your victim know and not be surprised that even though they say that they have speedy trial in six months, it may not happen that quickly. Um, if it's set out for that pretrial conference, really the prosecutor, again, should then be in contact with Janice, talking to the Janice about um, what could happen at the pretrial conference. So again, a pretrial conference serves the purpose of either seeing if they can work out a plea with Jason or if they need to set the case for trial. It's important to note, again, in our system, 90 to 95% of our cases plea and don't go to trial. So oftentimes victims are really scared about having to testify or having to go to trial, and it's not often the case that they have to. Or on the opposite, they become really frustrated that there's an option for a plea versus actually going to trial and being able to tell their story and testify. Um, victims will want both of those scenarios to happen. But in, in Jason's case, we're going to assume again that they go to a pretrial conference and at that time, Jason still doesn't want to take any type of plea, so they're going to set the case for trial. In our system for trial, there's really kind of four phases that they're going to go through uh, in a trial, and this will be true both for the felony and the misdemeanor. So when we get to the felony part, a lot of this will go a lot faster than the misdemeanor explanation, but I want to just make sure you understand all of what's happening. If the case is set for trial, they'll start filing a lot of different types of what they call pre-trial motions and having motion hearings, and those motions can vary across the gamut of what will happen. And so it could be that when Jason got in the car, he said something like, oh, she deserved it. Certainly his attorney is not going to want that to come in at trial, so he might file a motion asking to suppress that statement from Jason so it can't come into trial. That might be the type of motion hearing that happens ahead of time. There also might just be motion hearings. Maybe Jason had other uh, prior victims that he treated in a similar way, and they may try and keep out that information in the trial. Again, I think what's really important um, from an advocacy perspective for victims is that for attorneys, it's really routine to go through all these motion hearings and that they're pretty typical. For a victim, it can seem really um, strange that they can make requests like having their statement not heard uh, or excluded from the trial. And so what you don't want to do, I had a, um, a prosecutor once say to me, well, just tell her they were the normal motions and that nothing happened. Well, that doesn't really work for a victim when they actually need information. So it's really important for, if you can, if you work in a prosecutor's office uh, as an advocate to be sure that you're finding out what the motions mean and explaining and taking the time to explain those to the victim. Uh, we will then obviously get to jury selection. We're going to assume that Jason didn't want a court by trial, um, trial by court, but he wanted a jury trial of his peers. So they will have to select six jury members to sit um, victims can sit through jury selection uh, most of the time, and then they usually pick one or two people to serve as alternates on a jury. And so those individuals don't know they're the alternates, and so they'll hear all of the testimony, and then they'll just be dismissed right before they go in to actually deliberate on a verdict. 
then we go into trial and there's presentation of evidence. Uh, usually there's opening remarks. Then the prosecutor gets to present their case, call any witnesses they want to call. And then the defense can put on evidence after that. They don't have to do so, but they can. And then the district attorney's office gets one more chance if they would like to do what's called a rebuttal evidence based on what the defense attorney presented. So they can call additional witnesses to basically refute or try to refute any testimony that the defense counsel put on. Um, and then they will do closing arguments and then send the jury back for deliberation and a verdict. Um, I can, again, it can be really difficult um, to try and get a verdict. We think it sounds easy to get six unanimous, which is what's required in a county court. You can't have a 5-1 to convict someone. It has to be all six jurors agreeing that the person is guilty of the charge. And um, during this whole process, we have in Colorado sort of two um, pieces that the prosecutor has to balance out. Under the Victim's Rights Act, a victim has a right to be present during all stages of the criminal justice process, including the trial. And then within Colorado's law, there's a rule of sequestration. And the rule says that if you are subpoenaed for a trial, that you can be sequestered or asked to be out of the courtroom during testimony until it's your time to testify. This happens a lot uh, where the defense will ask that the victim be sequestered out of the courtroom because obviously they're going to testify at some point and prosecutors should be arguing for their right to be present under the Victim's Rights Act. It's really important, again, for victims to just know and expect that that request may be made so they're not surprised when the defense attorney asks them to be removed from the courtroom. It's also really uh, important for the victim to know what's actually going to happen and if the, if the prosecutor is going to argue for their right to be present. There's a way to really sort of balance both of those out is that the victim can testify first um, and then be allowed to stay in the courtroom because they're testimony is not going to be tainted by sitting in and listening to other people testify, which is why the defense typically asks for them to be uh, sequestered out in Colorado. Um, it's important to know Colorado has some case law around this. The case of People v. Coney is a criminal homicide case where the victim's dad was asked to be out of the courtroom for the entire homicide trial because he was subpoenaed to testify. I, I was actually the advocate on the case when it happened, and the dad was subpoenaed to testify because his daughter had been murdered, and unfortunately, she had been left on the side of the road and was severely decayed by the time law enforcement found her, and they actually had taken DNA from the dad's um, done a buckle swab of his cheek to identify her as a victim, and because he had done that, that's why uh, the court ordered a sequestration and he had to sit out in the hallway for the two weeks of his daughter's homicide trial. And that case was appealed. That's why we have case law on it. So the district attorney's office appealed saying that he had a right to be present and they agreed with that ruling and saying he should not have been sequestered out for the trial. And what's important about that case is nothing that he was going to testify to would have said one way or the other if this defendant was guilty. It just merely identified his daughter as the victim in the case, and so he should have never had to sit in the hallway through that whole trial. Um, but it's an important piece of legislation to uh, ensure that victims should be present during those stages. What's also important to know in this type of case with Janet and Jason, Janet and Jason, is that oftentimes prosecutors uh, in a domestic violence case are trying to weigh um, the victim's right to be present and not taint the testimony if it's a he said, she said sort of scenario and the only two witnesses you have are the victim and the offender. It may be strategically better to have the victim out and sequestered, but what really needs to happen is that the prosecutor needs to talk to the victim about why they're doing that as a trial strategy instead of just having them sequestered out and surprised by it. Okay, this links back to my horrible T.J. Hooker um, picture that I showed you early in. What we also know today in our criminal justice system is what we call the CSI effect in our juries. Um, if you've ever watched that show or watched any shows like that, jurors expect a lot of evidence to be presented in a case. And what they think they're going to see based on their perception of what happens on TV is very different if you've watched any sort of jury trial or been through court trials. 
And so a lot of times now, prosecutors have to do a lot of education up front with their jurors and talk to them about what evidence they're expecting to see and what's realistic that they won't see as part of the case. If you watch those shows, there's always a full fingerprint. They have those cool glass screens and tables and they get a match in 30 seconds when they run someone through a database. And none of those things actually happen that simple in real life. I remember, I, don't, I didn't watch CSI regularly, but I remember watching one sh show for CSI New York and they were trying to chase down a suspect and they went in an alley and they noticed a rat hair was sent in a westerly direction so that they knew that must have been the way that the offender ran down the alley. So we all know that's like ridiculous types of evidence that then they then presented and solved the case. So um, I put this up here in part to just say, again, we never tell victims that it's a slam dunk case, that you can guarantee that the jury's going to uh, convict the offender because our juries come in with some pretty strange preconceived notions about uh, what they'll see and what could happen. And so uh, I think it's always best to advise a victim that we don't know what will happen as a result of a jury trial. Uh, and we hope to get 12 people who can use sound reasoning uh, and have reasonable expectations about what evidence will be pre uh, presented in a case. So when anybody goes to trial, obviously in Jason's case, we're again still talking about a misdemeanor case. He could be acquitted which basically means he's found not guilty of harming Janice, or he could be guilty. And if he's found guilty by the six jurors, he could get up to two years in jail. He can also get um, 60 days or less in jail as part of a probation sentence, or he can get what we call uh, a suspended or deferred sentence. And what that does for Jason is, if he gets some sort of suspended sentence, he's on a deferred sentence, which means he doesn't serve any time in county jail initially, and he's basically advised that as long as he commits no new offenses within that two-year time period, he will never have to serve a day in jail. We also have what's called a deferred judgment, which wouldn't come out of a trial, but would come out of a plea agreement. And a deferred judgment would basically say that Jason would enter a guilty plea at that time, and he could be given two years of probation or two years of unsupervised probation. And if he, again, commits no offenses during that time other than traffic offenses, his guilty plea is withdrawn and the, it's never on his record. So basically a deferred judgment gives them another chance at not having the charges appear on their record. Okay, hopefully you guys are hanging in, doing okay. We're gonna talk about the felony incident, which is just slightly different and we won't have to go through nearly as many slides about the court process, but we're going to change it up just a little bit in their scenario. So again, they're still having a barbecue, they're still having some friends over, they have their verbal argument and the guests are hearing them arguing, but at some point during the argument, things change a little bit. Jason hits Janice in the face, holds her arm behind her back, and Jason told all of the guests that Janice has a headache, so the neighbors leave. She heads upstairs because she's in pain. Um, luckily, she's able to leave the house later and go to the hospital. When she gets there, though, she is diagnosed with a broken nose and a sprained shoulder. Um, law enforcement actually goes to the hospital at that point to speak with her, and again, Jason is arrested in this scenario. Um, seems a little bit different this time based on her injury. So now we have what's called second-degree assault. Uh, if you'll recall just now from the scenario, she has both a sprain and the broken nose. Um, so what then comes into play under our statute is what's called serious bodily injury. And by definition, this uh, definition is up here on the screen, but it means that at that time, there's a substantial risk of death, permanent disfigurement, or protracted loss or impairment of the function of any part or body organ. So that includes the breaks and fractures. So because Janet had a broken nose, that moves this to a second degree assault instead of the third degree assault. We also can see this a lot in um, stalking, not stalking, strangulation cases. <laughs> My other S. Um, I think most of us would agree that someone has a substantial risk of death when their air passage is um, blocked off and they are being strangled. So in Colorado, when we're looking to have the serious bodily injury piece added to a case, a, a physician or a doctor actually has to sign off on a form in Colorado saying that there was serious bodily injury. Uh, and that's what, again, helps it uh, in the case become a higher felony charge as a result of the injury sustained by Janice. So things will work similar for Jason, but uh, the terms 
within the critical storage stages in the court system are a little different. So he's still gonna go into custody. He still can't be seen and bond out immediately. So he'll have what's called the first appearance and bond hearing. And at that time, the judge will tell them he has a right to an attorney. The judge will set a bond. Bond should be higher than what was set in the misdemeanor case. And then he'll be asked to return for filing of charges. Uh, in a misdemeanor case, the law enforcement officer files the charges directly with the court, uh, the third degree assault and harassment, et cetera. When it is a felony, law enforcement um, sends those charges over to the district attorney's office for the DA to review. So the DA will come into court with a charging document for the filing of charges. Uh, that's a critical stage under the Victim's Rights Act where the victim has the right to be present. And the DA can take the charges that the officer thought were reasonable charges. They can add or subtract charges from that at any time, both in the misdemeanor and the felony. Um, if you're working with victims and not familiar with uh, the filing of charges, it's kind of important to maybe watch at least one of those hearings because it's actually about a five-minute hearing at most. Um, and if you're trying to help a victim decide whether they want to appear in court for the filing of charges or not, um, you can talk to them. They may sit in a courtroom for a couple hours on a very large docket uh, for a five-minute hearing, and most of the time the defense and the offender will say that they don't actually want the charges read out loud in court, and they just set it for another court date. So it may be important for the victim to be there and hear that and be present, but if the victim has limited um, time to come to court for court hearings, that's probably not the most important one that they need to be at um, to miss work, but it's up to them. After that, the case is set for a preliminary hearing. A preliminary hearing is really a presentation of evidence by the district attorney's office to tell the court that they have charged the right person with the right uh, crimes. Oftentimes, just the law enforcement officer has to testify at the preliminary hearing. Most of the time, the victim does not. Um, and then at the end of that hearing, the court will basically say that they feel like the, the charges fit based on the testimony they've heard, and they can move on to the next phase in the trial process, which is an arraignment. An arraignment is, again, a time in which the defendant comes in and either says guilty or not guilty. If they say that they are not guilty, um, they are going to have it set for a trial. If they say and are ready to say they're guilty, they might set it out and have the plea hearing and do that next in the case. Janice, um, in this scenario, the process works a little bit different than the fast track scenario I described where they really want her in that next day. Um, she will be advised again when Jason has his first advisement date, and she will be called by the district attorney's office still to introduce themselves, see if she needs services, see if she has any questions, um, talk to her about the bond again. And then typically a victim is sent a letter saying, here are the charges we're filing, and they include a victim impact statement in that for the victim to fill out. Most of the victim impact statements in our system are used for two purposes. One is to just see um, what the victim would like to have happen in the case, um, but it's also often used to determine restitution for the victim. So were there any medical bills, were the, their property damage as a result of the crime that they want the offender to eventually be ordered to pay when the case uh, gets to the plea or sentencing phase of the case. It's important, again, for victims to know that the offender has a right to see the victim impact statement. It's not a confidential document. So if victims are filling that out, they need to know that the defendant is going to see that and read that. And so victims may choose not to actually fill that out at that time. Um, for the felony case, it's going to take longer to kind of go through that process. So Janice will start getting letters as required under the Victims Rights Act, notifying her of all of the critical stages in the case um, so that she can make the choice about whether she wants to be at those stages or not be at those stages and then follow up after uh, those court appearances if she's unable to attend. The other piece that still has to occur regardless of whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony is that Janice has to be consulted on the case. So again, a prosecutor should be contacting her saying, here's what I'm thinking about doing in the case. What's your opinion on the case? Depending on the severity of the charges, it may be an in-person meeting. And in some district attorney's offices, consultation happens through the advocate. So the advocate may relay the, relay the plea offer to the victim versus the prosecutor. I'm actually not in favor of that process. I think the prosecutor needs to speak with the victim and explain why they're coming up with the plea offer that they're coming up with. If for some reason in the area you work, the advocates are relaying the plea offer instead of the prosecutor, 
for compliance with the VRA, what also has to happen is that the victim has to be informed that that's the offer, but it, the prosecutor is available to talk to them if they have any questions. So they still need to have that opportunity to speak with the prosecutor if they want to. This is the exact same slide for um, stages of trial. The same thing's going to happen. What I will tell you that um, happens somewhat differently in a felony case, and it's important, again, for your victims to know this is happening. If for some reason the case is going to trial, um, after the prosecution presents their evidence, defense sometimes will um, stand up in court and say that they have a mid-trial motion that they want all of the charges dismissed because they don't think that the district attorney has proven their case. That's shocking for a victim to hear if they don't know it's coming. So it's really important as an advocate to let them know that that could happen during the trial. More often than not, um, the judge disagrees with the defense's request for that and the case continues on. But you definitely wanna prep your victim for that coming in and so that they're not surprised during that process that um, there's actually gonna be this strange mid-trial motion to dismiss everything after they've sat through all of those things happening in their case. When you get to the felony sentencing options, they are slightly different from the misdemeanor. You can still get probation. Um, instead, you could get community corrections or you could be sentenced to the Department of Corrections. And they're all intertwined because uh, they can be different phases that actually happen. A defendant may um, be sentenced to Department of Corrections, phase out into community corrections after, um, or they may start on probation, do horrible, get sentenced to community corrections, continue to fail, and then end up in department corrections, which is why they're all uh, connected in this way on the diagram. So uh, victims often get probation and parole confused just by terminology. So probation um, is the first one that we have up here. Probation has nothing to do with the offender coming out of prison. Probation is usually an initial step. We have 80,000 people in Colorado that are on probation at any time. And this information all comes online from the judicial report. You can see the reference at the bottom. You can read all about everything they did in probation in the courts for this last year. Um, probation successfully terminated 61% of their clients. Um, you can also see on there that victims have to request notification on their cases if it's VRA. So this is something in Colorado uh, that's a little bit different as far as our VRA during the initial arrest and during uh, the prosecution of the case, victims are automatically notified about all of the statuses. Once an offender has been sentenced under the VRA, they have to request notification to continue to be notified. So they have to request notification from probation. Our system also doesn't work that if they request with probation that that will carry through through everything else. So if for some reason the offender does not stay on probation successfully and goes to community corrections, a victim has to enroll again with community corrections and potentially again with the Department of Corrections. Uh, just for your information, that uh, was put into the VRA initially to give the victim the choice to not be involved in the system after sentencing if they didn't want to continue that involvement. What we know now and what we're trying to change possibly in the next round of legislation is to maybe make our system opt out where they would still be enrolled automatically for post-sentencing notification rather than having to proactively enroll. According to the judicial report, $32.5 million in restitution was collected um, from probation. I think what's important to know is we don't know how much was ordered. So <laughs> I think there's a lot of offenders that don't pay restitution and that can be a really hard thing for victims to know that they're out that loss and they don't get anything. But we also know offenders aren't always the most steady, job-working, honest, tax-paying people in our uh, community. And so oftentimes the victims don't get the restitution uh, that they're seeking. But we did at least, can be happy to say, we collected over 32 million last year on behalf of probation. Community corrections is the next level of sentencing that could happen in a felony case. And there's two ways to basically get into community corrections. You can have what's called a direct sentence from community corrections. So right after you're convicted, um, you as an offender um, can be sentenced to community corrections by the judge. It's basically a first step um, before sending you to prison if the judge thinks that's appropriate. And uh, as with other things in our system, communities, correction boards are set up across the state to 
um, determine if an offender can be accepted into their community correction program. And those boards all work different in each community. There are um, 22 community correction boards, but there are not programs of community corrections in every jurisdiction in the state. And those boards can be made up of community members, sometimes they're made up of county commissioners, uh, sometimes they're made up in part of people who work in the system, but that board will review that application and determine if they are eligible to have a direct sentence. You also see up there that it says indirect, and that's the second part of community corrections. Oftentimes when uh, offenders are coming out of the Department of Corrections, they basically want to set them down into something that's still a semi-controlled environment. So after they get out of prison, they will go down into a community corrections program. Also important for everybody to know, community corrections is not a locked down facility. Offenders who are in community corrections are expected to go off site, find jobs. So they are, again, in the community. So it's good for a victim to know that they could have an offender in their area that they don't want to be surprised that they're running into them. And they can enroll again for notification from community corrections so that they know their whereabouts. The last and highest sentence that we could give in the state of Colorado is a sentence to Department of Corrections. There's lots of things that it's important for a victim to know about community corrections. Uh, first of all, when they go in, they go up to what's called the Diagnostic Center in Denver, or DRDC, and that's an assessment that the offender goes through so they can determine what level of facility to put them in within the community Department of Corrections system, what level of security they need in those systems. Another really important part for victims to know about Department of Corrections and sentencing in general is that we don't have what's truth in sentencing. So if an offender is sentenced to 40 years in Department of Corrections, that is actually not the time that they will typically serve in Department of Corrections. They will serve some portion of that because while they're in there, they get good time and earn time. Some of that is statutory. So um, earn time comes off of sentences basically for them being in there and behaving in a good time gives them additional days off of their sentence while they're in there if they're doing things they're supposed to be doing. And depending on the calculations for the offense committed, it's quite possible that an offender could have 20 days a month or 25 days a month taken off their sentence out of the 30 days for good time and earn time. And um, that's really hard for victims to hear and understand and, and have that expectation of when an offender is actually going to get out on a Department of Corrections sentence. It's also important for them to know this early on because they can um, look on the Department of Corrections website and find an inmate on there and it'll, on that website, it'll tell them what their parole eligibility date is. And unfortunately, oftentimes that's where victims first learn that truth in sentencing is a little different because they're shocked at how soon an offender is eligible for parole. So those are really important conversations for individuals and advocates working in the system to have with the victim prior to that. It's another system where they have to opt in for notification and then they will be notified any time um, a parole hearing comes up and they have a right to be present at that parole hearing and speak to the parole board. But um, in Colorado, if it's considered a nonviolent crime, they typically serve 50% of their sentence. And for violent crime, they serve 75% of their sentence. So very different than what a victim would expect um, as they're going through the process. Uh, the last part, after Department of Corrections, if you're coming out of a DOC sentence, you also then will be have a mandatory parole period. Again, this is what's different from probation, so it's time served after Department of Corrections. It's supposed to keep some supervision on the offender as they come back out into the community to make sure that they are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and complying with all of the rules and not violating anything. If for some reason they are not in compliance with what they're supposed to do out on parole, they can um, have an order picking them up on parole and putting them back into the Department of Corrections for a period of time. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's still burns as bright tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth but from the enduring power of our ideals democracy liberty opportunity and unyielding hope let me tell you something you already know the world ain't all sunshine and rainbow it's a very mean and nasty place and i don't care
care how tough you are, they will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me or nobody, is going to hit as hard as life. Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. Five poor little children. Yes, we can. One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you beat. Welcome to Public Access America. Yes, we can. Now on Instagram and SoundCloud. You wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. Apple Podcasts, the Stitcher Smart Radio app, Audible, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 